Okay, it's been great to be with everyone. Everyone feeling okay? We're feeling good? We've had a lot of different things happen today. I'm excited this morning to take us through a portion of uh, Romans 5. And for reference, last week, Pastor Jack, he took us through Romans 4, right? And he helped us discover, does anyone remember, what faith looked like? So we, went, we looked at Abraham, we looked at what faith looked like, and he highlighted how faith is not a get-out-of-free, or get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It's not a cosmic ticket, was the language he used. It's not a cosmic ticket into heaven. Instead, we explored how living a life of faith is meant to usher us into participation in the work of God. And so, while this week we're going to take what we heard from last week, and we're going to mine it a little further, in Romans 5, Paul kind of Uh, rehashes the same ideas, but he does it in a different way. So he switches kind of the way he does this. Um, There's so much packed into chapter 5, we couldn't be able to hit all of it in one day. So we're only looking at the first five verses. There's a whole lot more. Read it at home. Do your thing. Enjoy that. But this morning, as I was preparing, I was thinking that we were supposed to focus on what we might call Romans 4 2.0. It's a rehashing of what happened last week. So if, if it's a record, it's the B-side, it's the deep cuts. We're all about that. We're cool here. So here we go. Growing up in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, I'm from Toronto. Um, I went to church a lot. And when I mean a lot, I mean a lot, a lot. So we went to Sunday morning uh, for Sunday school. Then Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday kids church, Wednesday prayer meeting. And then when we got to youth, it was Tuesday youth, Friday youth. And then when I was playing in the band, it was Thursday practice. And so that's a lot of church, right? It's not unrealistic to actually, when I, when I tally it up, realize that I spent probably 180 to 220 days of the year in church. So, again, a lot of church, a lot of sermons, a lot of teaching. And one of the things that happens when you're in church that much, especially as a child, is you start questioning everything that you're doing, right? So, why are we in church this much? Why do we go to church here when these kids don't have to go to church? How can we have to go to prayer meeting? How can we have to do all this? Oh, also, side note. All that time, those days, like four or five days of the week, didn't include revival, which is every day for certain periods of time. Some of you don't know at all what I'm talking about. That's like a different world. Eventually, I'm sure you'll hear about it um, from me, like my experience in it, not about revival. <laughs> I want to be clear on that. But that's a, that's, that's a different world. They would last like two weeks. Um, a lot of church. A lot of church. So one of the questions that I remember asking my parents one time was, remember the song in kids' church, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart? Right, right? (laughs) We all know it. And that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the weekend. So I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And (laughs) we'll keep going. I love that song because it was kind of tongue twistery, right? It was a fun one to do. There was actions. And then there was also like that verse that went, and 
I had to look it up because I couldn't remember the wording. Uh, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch. Right? <laughs> remember that one? Like, fun times. Good times in church. Really knew how to live on the edge. Uh, anyways, I remember singing the song and being, feeling like there's so much that goes unanswered in this song. Like, we say we have the joy of the Lord in our heart, but how does that actually work? And also, recognize I'm like 8 years old, 10 years old, so physiology doesn't really make sense. None of this makes sense. How does this work? And like, how do we know we have the joy? And then there's also that other verse, I've got the glorious hope of my blessed Redeemer way down in the depths of my heart. Tongue twister. Um, And in that, like, how do we know we have hope? What is this hope that we're all talking about? How do we know we have this in the depths of my heart? Well, friends, today we're in luck because today we're going to explore three things. One is what it means to be filled with joy, what it means to be filled with hope, and then what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And this is all in Romans 5. So what it means to be filled with joy, with hope, and the Spirit. Okay? So starting at 5 verse 1, I want us to notice how Paul starts this chapter kind of with an Easter egg that's meant to point us back to everything else we've looked at so far. So verse 1, we have been made right with God. Why? Because of our faith. Now remember, again, last week, just how we looked at Abraham, living faithfully is not the same thing as living unquestioningly. Right? So faith is not certainty. Instead, faith is a posture of trust or confidence that opens ourselves up to allow God to work in our lives. And so Abraham disbelieved God on multiple occasions, and yet he is the father of faith. And he was the father of faith because despite his reservations, despite his disbelief, he still believed God. He still trusted God as to what was possible. So we have been made right with God because of our faith. Now we have peace with him, that's God, because of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we have received God's grace. And in that grace, we stand. So the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, that's what this is all about. We stand in the grace of God. But now if you're following along in your outlines, point one, we are full of joy because we expect to share in God's glory. We're full of joy because we expect to share in God's glory. Now notice that Paul here has started to shift his imagery from the previous chapters. He gives a nod to everything that's said earlier, but he moves from what we would call legal or judicial language, like the idea of justification, reconciliation, bound by the law. He takes all that language, and now in chapter 5, he's going to shift it to therapeutic or relational language. He's going to change the metaphor. And recognize, he's talking to two different audiences. He's talking to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome. So this is part of why he's using different imagery. So moving forward, I want us to take a moment and recognize that for the Christians there, they're going to be uh, like absorbing this material differently. We're full of joy because we expect to share in God's glory. When we travel, um, 
if we, if we were to picture ourselves back in Rome in this moment, right? This is 56 AD. This is probably when Paul wrote the letter. Most scholars would agree he wrote the letter in this time. In Rome, I want us to picture what it's like to live in the very center of the empire. So the concept of glory is not foreign to these people at all, right? They are surrounded always by reminders of Caesar, by the glory of Rome, by the power of Rome. These are things that are very present in these people's lives, in the original audience's lives. And so for him, for Paul, he is appealing to God's glory here by taking the concept of Roman glory, and then he's telling the Roman Christians that they can expect to share in a glory that is even more spectacular, right? That's more, uh, it's more than anything of the opulence of Caesar's glory. It's just a better glory. This is what you can expect to glory in. This is why your joy is found here. Again, quoting Paul, we are full of joy because we expect to share in God's glory. Now note, this isn't a temporary word of encouragement. For Paul, this is a statement of fact for him that's rooted in what, um, rooted in the faith that he has just told us to place in God. So joy here is more than a happy feeling. That doesn't mean that joy and happiness don't go hand in hand. But back to the song, right, I've got the joy down in my heart. The chorus of that song is, and I'm so happy, so very happy, I've got the love of Jesus in my heart, right? We sing about joy and happiness together, hand in hand. Again, they can go that way. But happiness is more so externally initiated, while joy is typically internally motivated. Happiness is externally initiated, and joy is internally motivated. So this is what Viktor Frankl, the Jewish psychiatrist who went through the Holocaust, talks about. He makes this distinction. Like for him, he was able to remain joyful even in the midst of tragedy around him, horrible circumstances, even though he wasn't always happy, And he says he could do this because he remained joyful in the meaning that endured. He had a sense of the meaning that endured. So he makes this distinction. Joyfulness and happiness. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, speaking therapeutically. He's reminding the Jews and the Gentiles that we are full of joy and we expect to share in God's glory. And now he's going to unpack what that joy looks like, what that all shakes out to be. So verse 3, and that's not all. We are full of joy even when we suffer. We know that our suffering gives us the strength to go on. So we know that suffering gives us the strength to go on. Now this is one of those verses we've heard often. We're really familiar with it. Maybe in the language of the ESV or one of the other versions. Um, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. I love the way, though, that the New International Reader's Version, the one that we read today, parses out this verse, parses out this sentence. Where other translations might say, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, the NIRV makes two things very clear. So the first thing is that, um, notice how we see that we are full of joy 
even when we suffer. So there's a clear difference between being full of joy in spite of suffering, being joy even when we're suffering, and actively rejoicing in suffering. Does everyone see how those are two different things? There's a difference between being full of joy even when we suffer and then actively rejoicing in suffering. So in the NIRV, being full of joy is a way of being in both highs and lows of our life. In other translations, we are told to rejoice or celebrate. Some other translations will say, I boast in my suffering because it produces endurance. And in this way, in the way that I always heard this verse taught to me, suffering becomes a means to an end. Right? Put differently, endurance is the end that suffering brings. And so what this implies to us is God might make you suffer so that you will learn how to endure things. Does everyone see how that, how that follows out? Don't miss this. The NIRV, how it's parsing this verse, is radically different than how we might have heard it before. So friends, God does not want you to chase after suffering so that you develop more endurance in your life. Right? He doesn't want you to whip yourself. This is what a practice they had in the medieval ages, flagellants, right? They would whip themselves as a way of building endurance, building character. That's not what God wants for you. That's not what he's talking about in this verse. Instead, through the grace that we have received, through our faith in Christ, we can live in such a way that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. And that joyful state, that joyful state of being, can give us the strength to go on. And God wants nothing less than this for you. So second, notice also how the NIRV uses the phrase, the strength to go on. Again, other translations will use the word endurance or the ability to withstand. But the NIRV says the strength to go on. So here, Paul is not saying that endurance is a kind of passive reception of suffering. It's not that you're just sitting there getting hammered by suffering, right? Instead, here Paul is saying that our state of being filled with joy in our highs and lows gives us the strength to be able to press on or go on in the face of suffering. Now hear me, Bethany. That may mean that in some situations you are given the strength to go on, to go on here. You're given the strength to carry on, the strength to be able to bear suffering. You're given the strength to go on. But at other times, in other situations, being full of God's joy, you are given the strength to go on. You're given the strength to move on. You're given the strength to carry along from a situation, a situation that might be particularly trying or damaging. So these are two ways that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength or our refuge. And this is a judgment call. If you find yourself in a situation like this, particularly in situations like of abuse, or even more so if your counsel, if the counsel you've received from church is something that says, oh, you just need to endure, right? Endurance, character, hope, that's all in God. If that's the counsel you've been given, uh, let's talk. 
There's more to what God wants for you in your life. Like, this is not one of those verses that we can use or should use to, uh, like, accept or propagate evil. So it's a judgment call. The strength to go on. Again, we never call evil good just because good seems to come from evil. And it's crucial for us to understand that if we want to understand this passage properly. So we are full of joy even when we suffer. We know that our suffering gives us the strength to go on. This is God's word, friends. Hear it and let God speak to you. This is what being filled with joy is supposed to look like, to open ourselves up to the movement of God in the world and then join with him in the creation of peace. So back to the text. We are full of joy even when we suffer. We know that our suffering gives us the strength to go on. Verse 4. The strength to go on produces character, and character produces hope. And hope will never bring us shame. Hope will never bring us shame. So if being filled with joy is meant to give us the working, or open us to the working of God, even in our suffering, so that we might be able to have the strength to go on, or to go on, and that in turn gives us character to be hopeful, how do we live lives that are full of hope? I think we can often get confused when we talk about hope in relation to God. So take today, for instance. If you're not already streaming the Seahawks game secretly on your phone, (laughs) heathens, if you're not there, I'm just kidding, um, You might say something like, I hope that the Seahawks win today, right? I hope the Seahawks win. I'm I'm Canadian. I don't have a horse in the race at all, just so you know. I could go either way. Um, So I hope the Seahawks win today. Or maybe more seriously, you'll say something, what if your child comes to you and your child says, "Um, I hope Mr. Hamster wakes up soon. Mr. Hamster is not moving in his cage, right? (laughs) I hope Mr. Hamster wakes up soon. In both these situations, we experience different degrees of ability to influence that which is hoped for, right? So for the the Seahawks, probably not anyone in this room will will really have any kind of influence on the game, no matter, like, how hard you cheer, how much money you can wrangle up to pass to someone. It's not going to really make a difference, right? So we're kind of powerless in our hope with that one. Or... For the child, like we could replace the hamster and make it seem like what was hoped for has come to pass. We could do that, right? The child might not know Mr. Hamster actually woke up. But in both cases here, the hope that Paul is talking about is not like either of them. So hope for Paul isn't unfounded hope. It's also not a hope that we make happen for ourselves. It's not a pseudo hope in that. Instead, for Paul, our hope is always rooted firmly in the one who is also the root of our joy. For Paul, that root is Jesus. So for Paul, hope will never bring us shame because Paul knows that nothing on earth has the final word over God. If we trace through Jesus' life, think of all the things that seemed to be finished as he traveled through earth. 
Like through his miracles, sickness didn't have the final word. Demons didn't have the final word when he entered a city. Religious or political ideology, they didn't have the final word. Corruption didn't have the final word. Even death itself, we celebrate this every Easter, death itself didn't have the final word over Christ. And it is because of this, because of Christ triumphing over all things, that Paul can say, the hope we place our confidence in will never put us to shame. So listen to what Rowan Williams, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, former Archbishop, um, what he says about hope. Hope is not simply confidence in the future. It is confidence that the past, the present, and the future are held in one relationship so that confusions of who we were, who I was, who we are, who I am, become bearable because of the witness in heaven, the witness of Christ, who will not and does not abandon us. So Christian hope isn't wishful thinking in the future that's based on some propositional beliefs we've gathered from a book we call the Bible. That's not what Christian hope is. Christian hope is the recognition that nothing, not the past or the present or the future, is finished or unredeemable or irreconcilable because God is, not being, God is not done being God yet. There's not a single event that is outside of the scope of God's grace. And this is what Christian hope is rooted in. This is what Christian hope is. Now, it should be said that there is real pain in our waiting for all things to be made right. In the present time, we are foretasting what perfect reconciliation looks like. And if you've ever lost someone close to you, at Easter, when we sing songs about death losing its sting, like death has no sting, you know what it's like to really say those words in hope while still feeling the sting of loss. Because the sting of loss still isn't gone yet, right? So hope is not just good vibes. Hope Hope in God carries with it a kind of solemnness that does not trivialize the ongoing reality of death we currently experience. But our hope is that that will be reconciled, that will be redeemed. That's what our hope is in. However, Jesus, the one in whom we put our confidence, the one who died and rose again, defeating death by death, and the one who desires to have relationship with us, invites us into relationship with him through the power of the Spirit. And this is why our hope is not in vain. This is why Paul can say our hope will not put us to shame. Because we have confidence that God is who God says he is. And our relationship with Christ, given to us by grace, through faith, assures us that every wound anyone anywhere has experienced will be redeemed. Any wound, anyone, anywhere, anytime, will be redeemed. For clarity, that doesn't mean Jesus and God, doesn't, doesn't mean they're going to like back to the future us. It does mean that recognize when Christ is resurrected, he still has scars. Right? So past wounds aren't erased. They don't become erased. They become redeemed. And as they're redeemed, 
they're redeemed in such a way that Henry Nouwen, he says, our wounds will become signs of glory. Our wounds will become signs of glory. This is what Paul means when he says, we will be filled with hope. Christ is our living hope. And because Christ is our living hope, we can sing songs about chains being broken with confidence that even the chains that aren't yet broken will be broken by the one who is not bound by time. God is not done being God in the world, and God is not done being God in your life. So filled with joy and filled with hope. Filled with joy because we expect to share in God's glory. Filled with hope that will never put us to shame. As some of you know, my previous pastoring context was a Pentecostal liturgical church in Cleveland, Tennessee, where part of the weekly service was to take prayer requests out loud. We did it every week. And then as people gave the requests, we would pray with each other, laying on our hands. We'd take time. It would be about a 10 to 15 minute segment of the service every week. So one Sunday, one of the older ladies in the congregation asked if the church would pray for a young man from Guatemala who had just been put behind bars. Why he was put in jail was unclear. We didn't know. But in this moment, in the heart of the Bible Belt, in the Deep South, in the place where someone ran for Congress on the platform of making America white again, I saw people whose Facebook timelines would have made you assume they would be incapable of praying for this man. Join in intercession for this man's release. But the story didn't end there. As weeks continued, and as this first lady, every week, kept bringing up this guy, every week asking for prayer for him, for his release, every week, it was remarkable to see how slowly God transformed the lives of a couple ladies in particular to move from places of hesitant prayer for, in their words, illegals. Right? They moved from a place of hesitant prayer to voluntarily going as a group on a road trip four hours one way, four hours back. And this is like a group of maybe three or four 65-year-old ladies going to visit this guy to pray with him, to bring him homemade baked goods. I don't know if they were even allowed to bring them in, but they made like baskets of them. Brought them, prayed for him. Every week prayed for him. Every week called him, wrote to him, tried to connect with his family. And this is what they did as a result of this work of prayer that slowly changed their character, changed their hope. Now, I don't want to sentimentalize this story too much. Sometimes you have like preacher stories that just fit perfectly into what you're saying. This isn't one of those. <laughs> I, I don't know what actually happened to this, to this guy. Eventually, I know he got moved to a jail uh, along the southern border, and then we never heard from him again, and we weren't able to, uh, like we just stopped hearing about him. And that's where the story kind of ends for 
for us and him, like the relationship. We don't know. And so it's not one of those where, like, we prayed really hard, all this stuff happened, people changed their lives, and then happy ending, right? We don't know. And that's the world we live in. But our hope is that even if he was released back to Guatemala, if he was sent back to Guatemala, then God is still there. And the impact of these ladies changed his life, but even more so, his life changed the lives of these ladies. The encounter, the way that this this whole thing impacted our church community, and specifically those ladies, was unmistakably a work of the Spirit. The unity that that developed among that group of ladies, even well, and probably still are, even while they still have like very different, deep political, theological, and cultural differences, all that stuff kind of became secondary as the ladies began to be filled with joy and filled with hope, not for themselves, but for a stranger. So some of them put aside what were previously very tightly held convictions about how the world should be, And full of the Spirit, full of love, these ladies were able to pray for the fullness of God's joy and hope to be made manifest in this young man's life. So, so far with Paul, we've seen that to start this chapter, he's recapped what it looks like to enter relationship with God from the previous four chapters. He said that as a result of that, We're supposed to be full of joy as we share in God's glory. And then he's told us how we can be filled with hope as we live out the implications of being filled with joy. And this is all good stuff. This is rich theology. Paul's really doing it here. He's taking great care to parse out his words carefully. Like he has taken his time to write this letter. But don't miss this, friends. Everything we've looked at for the last month, Romans 1 through 4, everything we just heard earlier this morning, all the talk about being justified, all the talk about faith, everything we've looked at today concerning being full of joy, full of God's hope, all of this means nothing unless they are shown out in love. And look at verse 5 again. Look what Paul has been building his argument towards. Verse 5, And hope will never bring us shame. That's because God's love has been poured into our hearts. This happened through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So why won't we be brought to shame in our hope of the Lord? Because through the giving of the Holy Spirit, God's love has been poured into our hearts. How do we know that the joy we have in our hearts is from God? How do we know that? Because through the giving of the Holy Spirit, God's love has been poured into our hearts so that in the overflow of God's love, we are able to hope with God for the fullness of joy in other people's lives. We're able to hope with God for the fullness of joy in other people's lives. And not just the fullness of joy, friends. Keep working back through what we've learned. We're able to hope for the fullness of joy, for the reconciliation to happen. 
for others to be justified, for unity between divided groups. Again, he's talking to a divided church. So this is what being full of the Spirit means for Paul in Romans 5. Full of joy. Full of hope. Full of the Spirit. Full of joy, full of hope, full of the Spirit. As we close, there are a couple ways I want to invite us to respond this morning. So I don't know exactly where everyone in this room is, but we've covered a wide range of things. And if you feel like you would like someone to pray with you, we'll have um, Joni over on the side. She'll be more than happy to pray with you. Before we start singing, even as we sing, I'd like you to reflect on one of these three things that we've looked at today. Joy, hope, and the Spirit. Let us reflect on what we've heard this morning and ask God to help us to grow in one of these areas this week. So maybe you haven't been able to rejoice in much over the last little while. Maybe that's been really difficult. Friend, God is here and desires to fill you with joy that will carry you through the highs and lows of your life. Maybe hope seems like it's like pie in the sky. It's unrealistic dreaming. Friend, Christ, in Christ, we have a hope that will come good and is coming good in the present. God is not done being God yet. And maybe you haven't felt loved or been able to love in this past season. Friend, as some have argued that the Spirit is the very love of God, freely given and freely given to all, receive God's love today. So joy hope, and the Spirit. God is here, and there is nothing that is beyond the joy, the hope, or the love of God. So if you know someone who's going through something particularly hard, maybe ask them if you might pray with them. Don't infringe, but ask. Maybe that's what God wants for you. Obey the Lord, and be sensitive to how God is leading you in this moment. I'm going to pray for us, and then We'll, uh, we'll sing. God, we pray that you would seal these words on us. We pray that this spoken word, that it was faithful to your written word, and that it will lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, by your spirit, God. May we be made whole in you. And may the joy that carries us through highs and lows, may the hope that goes beyond understanding, the hope that um, is meant to help us see the ways that you're reconciling the world. And your spirit, your spirit of love, would those be present with us this week and this moment? And God, we pray this in your name. Amen.